Good morning. Our passage this morning is John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, thank you that in this moment you are here to help me speak and all of us to listen. Apart from your help, this will not make sense, and it will certainly have no enduring effect in our life. But you are the Spirit who teaches us all things and brings to our remembrance all you have said, Jesus. So please do that right now, and then take what we hear this morning and Bring it back to our remembrance, day after day, hour after hour, the rest of this week, till you gather us again and give us another word. We ask for your help in Jesus' name, and thank you for it in advance. Amen.
have any of you um, ever received a gift that you absolutely didn't see coming? Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, the short way of describing that would be a surprise gift. Somebody really got you. You didn't see it coming. I, I think back to Christmas mornings growing up for me when I did not know, no idea, there was a basketball hoop hidden in the shed out back or a, a ping pong table assembled but under a blanket in the garage. The, the gift had been purchased. It had been assembled. It was, it was ready and waiting, so to speak, but I, I didn't know it. I didn't realize it. It was, it was a total surprise. In switching scenarios a little bit, I, I wonder if you have ever received a gift, but then months or even years later after receiving it, only then really grasp in a deeper way just how precious that gift really is. Ever had that experience? My wife, Elisa, and I have been married for over 15 years now. And I, I found myself thinking this weekend that I had no blessed idea. I had no idea. I mean, maybe in part, but relatively no idea. When, when I asked the question in 2005 and she said, yes, the kind of gift that I was receiving, had no idea. And I think both sorts of experiences, the, the surprise gift you don't see coming and the gift you receive, but then as time grows, appreciate it all the more, Lord willing, both of those apply to the gift Jesus announces to his followers here in the second half of John 14. It's a gift that his disciples have yet to receive. They don't see coming, that's clear. And it's also a gift many of us in this room have received, but I would argue we often fail to appreciate it. And that's the gift of the Holy Spirit, friends. The gift of the Spirit. And, and it is, he is, one of the most precious gifts God has ever, ever given to us. Now, when I say those two words, Holy Spirit, I imagine that depending on your background, a wide variety of thoughts and experiences could be coming into your mind. Uh, some of you might be new to church and think, I have no clue what you're talking about. Holy Spirit sounds like it's something to do with God. I guess I'm spiritual. We'll, we'll go with that. Um, some of you might be thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> I, I sure hope this pastor is not about to launch off into all this charismatic craziness stuff. That, I came to Kingsway to get away from that. Please tell me you're not going there. Actually, I'll pay you later to just leave the spirit in a nice little locked box, Pastor. Or maybe some of you, opposite side, are thinking, bring it on. It's about time we talked about the part of Christianity that really matters more than all the rest of it. I've heard all that, as have many of you. And it's because of that 
problem. We all have these associations with this gift of the Spirit that I think we really have to work hard here to understand the context of John 14. We don't want to take our experiences and shove it on the Word. We want to take God's Word and let it interpret our experiences. So, let's do that, all right? Jesus' closest followers are troubled here. They're still troubled. They were troubled last week. Newsflash, it hasn't changed. Still in the same moment. They're still troubled. Because he told them at the end of John 13 that he's about to peace out on them. I'm going away. And when I go away, you guys aren't going to do so great. <laughs> One of you is about to betray me. Uh, my main man, Peter, is going to follow suit. And when they press Jesus for details, he responds in verse 1. Look back there, John 14. Guys, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't, don't respond to the challenges coming your way by ignoring your trouble, trying to make it go away as fast as possible. Do this. Lean the weight of your life on me. Trust me. Why? We saw this last week because faith in me, trusting Jesus in trouble, it enables you guys to be with God, to know God, and to participate in the works of God, even in your trouble. John 14, verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, even in your trouble. And the primary work God calls us to embrace through faith in Jesus is the work of prayer. Look at John 14, 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's where every good work God sets before us ultimately begins, friends, with a, a spirit of humble, confident dependence on the Lord. But we don't stop with prayer. Look at verse 15. The work Christians do necessarily includes obeying everything God has said to us in his word. Everything. Amen. Jesus makes that crystal clear in this whole passage. Not once or twice, but five times. If you have a Bible, keep your eyes on it. Look at this. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And then in verse 31, he points to his own example and says, I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. I've titled this sermon, the, the Gift of the Holy Spirit, Part 1. I'll tell you why in a second. But you could argue this passage isn't first and foremost about the Holy Spirit. It's about the connection, the relationship between loving God and obeying God. Jesus, notice, never says we, we earn God's love by obeying him. Okay, Nor does he say God only loves those who perfectly obey him. No, no, he says five times that you cannot separate your affections from your actions. You can't detach those things. What, what you love in your heart cannot be separated from the choices you make in your life. 
It's impossible. Loving God and obeying God, in other words, are not two separate things as if we can have one, kind of got that under wraps, but not the other. Oh yeah, I love God. Totally I do. I mean, he's, he's pretty sweet. I, I'm just not really into doing everything he says. No. <laughs> no. Love for God, by definition, is obedience to God. And if you define it, love for God, any other way, something I feel, sort of good vibes, I, you're welcome to do that. Just know that is not what God says love for him is. Real love for Jesus expresses itself in obedience to his commands. And sometimes I hear people say in response what my own heart says in response, pastor, that's just too hard. It's just too hard. I, I know what I'm supposed to do. Ever said this or heard this? I know what God tells me to do, but I, I can't. There, I said it. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. <laughs> it's impossible to which, to which I say, and the word of God says what? You're right. No, I thought you were supposed to motivate me that I can. Nope. Not even going to go there. God doesn't go there. You're right. <laughs> you can't. It's impossible. Were it not for an exceedingly precious gift that Almighty God has given every one of his children. The gift of the Holy Spirit. I mean, let's be honest, okay? Obeying God's commands, loving him by obeying his commands is exceedingly hard work, friends. It it is crazy hard to look to God for your identity instead of your own sexual desires or feelings. It is crazy hard to spend all this emotional energy loving a spouse who just is mired in depression and suicidal thoughts. Trusting Jesus in the middle of trouble is always hard. And as I just said, it's so hard that it's impossible. You're right. Apart from the gift that Jesus identifies in verse 16, look there, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. What's the point of this whole passage? It's, It's the main point this week, the main point next week. Loving Jesus means obeying Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Loving Jesus means obeying Jesus by the power of the Spirit. So, so who is this Holy Spirit whose help we need to obey God's commands as an expression of our love for him? Well, Jesus answers that question, I think, in at least seven ways in this passage. And we're going to look at three of them this morning and four of them next Sunday. Okay, so who is this Holy Spirit? First, the Spirit is given by God. He's given by God. Look at verse 16 if you have a Bible open. The the word that in the ESV 
if that's the version you're looking at, um, says helper, he will give you another helper, could, could also be translated as intercessor or advocate or counselor, though, though not in a kind of a strictly legal sense that, that we often use with those terms. And in passive form, that word means someone who is called to someone else's aid. Or, or in the active sense that's found here, it captures the idea of a friend who fully supplies what another needs. And, and from verse 16 onward, it's very clear Jesus is not speaking when he speaks of the helper of a mere force or, or a power or, or sort of a mystical essence in the spiritual realm. He's, he's talking about a person, a person, a real person. And notice he identifies him Look at back at verse 16 again, not, not as a helper, which could imply one among many, but as what? Another helper, indicating that, that this helper is going to help the disciples during Jesus' physical absence from them in the same way that Jesus himself helped his disciples when he was physically present. So, so he's a distinct person, but his work is in the same category as Jesus' work. Okay, but that's not all. Look at verse 17. J- Jesus clarifies this. Who is this helper? Even further, his nature. He says, he is the spirit of truth. Now, if you were here last Sunday, that should ring a bell. Because in, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Truth in the sense that Jesus is the ultimate standard of truth because he's the definitive self-revelation of the God who is true. So, why does he say that the helper is the spirit of truth? It's because the helper, the spirit, is the one who bears witness to Jesus by communicating the truth about him, about Jesus, and all the helper does and says. So the helper, in brief... He does the work of God, and he communicates the truth about God. And the question we should ask in response is, why does he do that? How how does he do that? What's that tell us about who he is? Well, the, the why is because he is one with God, friend, and he is God. Why is the Spirit able to do the work of God and communicate the truth about God? It's not complicated. It's because he is one with God and he is God. 1 Corinthians 2.11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And in verse 26, Jesus just comes right out, explicitly identifies him as the Holy Spirit. The helper is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So, so what is, what's the takeaway from all that? It's really important, okay? The Holy Spirit isn't the crazy part of God. <laughs> or, or the awkward uncle we keep under lock and key of whom respectable Christians do not speak. He's not the spirit of God. As if you have kind of God, father and son, and then some sort of something emanates out of them and does stuff and then circles back and reports to HQ and 
you know, my spirit is just kind of, wah, 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 you know? No, no. He's a distinct person who, who subsists, who exists in the essence of the divine nature of God, no less than the Father and the Son. And as our own statement of faith declares, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. Listen, he is equal in deity, attributes, and nature with the Father and the Son, and with them is to be worshiped and glorified. If you are not thinking about the Spirit or preferring Father and Son over the Spirit, then you are trying to divide God himself into parts and take one and reject the other. Don't do that. If you want to worship and glorify God, you must worship and glorify the Holy Spirit. So, picking up the pace a little bit here, why why does Jesus say, look back at verse 16, this is so important, God the Father will give him, or if you see it, look in verse 26, or will send him, doing it all in Jesus' name. What's with the future tenses here? We'll do this, we'll do that. Well, well, here's where a little Old Testament background is really helpful, okay? In Joel chapter two, Joel was a prophet who spoke on God's behalf in the Old Testament. Verse 28, the Lord makes a promise. Listen to this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream Dreams. Scripture calls people old men, so don't freak out if others do, right? And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. What's the prophet's point? That regardless of age, social status, gender, every member of the people of God are going to be filled with the spirit. It's coming, guys. Not yet. Not now. But it's coming. And that's exactly what happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. After dying on the cross, rising from the grave, doing doing all that's necessary to reconcile sinners like us to a holy God, Jesus ascended into heaven and what did he do there? He propped his feet up. No. (laughs) He poured out a precious gift, Christian. Precious gift, the gift of the Spirit, in new covenant measure to continue the very work that Jesus began during his earthly ministry. Listen to Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. So who is this spirit that empowers us to love God by obeying God? He's he's given by God. He's sent by God. But Acts 2 reminds us that's not all he is. The spirit also, point two, indwells the people of God. He's sent by God or given by God, and he indwells the people of God. So let's think about what that means. Prior to Pentecost, that Acts 2 I just read, the Holy Spirit was not missing in action. 
I think sometimes we can, especially as Christians, we, we can think like that. You know, he's just kind of warming the bench. Not at all. Not at all. Our statement of faith also says, summarizing the teaching of Scripture, the eternal spirit was present at the beginning of God's creation, carrying out the creative word of God, giving life to all things. In God's work under the old covenant, the spirit was present with God's people to consecrate, deliver, guide, grant saving faith in the promises of God. He he empowered prophets to reveal God's word. He appointed elders to render judgment. He raised up judges to bring deliverance. He anointed priests and kings as his representatives. And on the side, inspired the record of old covenant revelation. That's quite a resume. He's not in a lounge. And in that sense, the spirit was, notice what Jesus says in verse 17, he was even in this moment with Jesus' disciples prior to Pentecost. So what what changed in Acts 2 then? What changed? Well, the spirit went from dwelling with God's people or among God's people to taking up residence in God's people. It's why, look at verse 17 again, the will be in you there. And in verse 23, the will come to him and make our home with him, both future, are in the future tense because they are looking forward to what had yet to happen, namely the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the spirit, new covenant measure. What's the significance of this? Well, it's one thing It's one thing to enjoy proximity to the presence of God. You know, the the saints of old, in the Old Testament, they they had that in part through through the physical tent of the tabernacle, the physical building of the temple. It's where God God made his presence known to them. I mean, what, what they could scarcely have imagined, of course, is the free access into the presence of God that we now have because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They they couldn't have imagined a day when that curtain in the temple would be ripped into. But God didn't stop with giving us today, through Jesus, just access into the temple of his presence. You know, we can think like that. Like, Lord, thank you for Jesus. So when I get in a tight spot, I can kind of shimmy up the prayer pole, give my needs to you, and then, you know, Boop, down come Jesus' blessings. It's like, no. No, he didn't stop with giving us access or, or like a phone line to God. No. Through the indwelling spirit, God makes us temples of his presence. You don't just have access into a temple somewhere where God is doing his thing. Christian, you are a temple of the living God. If you love Jesus as your savior and you're obeying him because you do, because that's what it means, then God through the spirit is never far from you because he's taken up residence in you and not periodically or occasionally or, yeah, but not now, gotcha. No, permanently. Look at verse 16. He will be with you forever. And so the Lord commands us, places like Ephesians 5, verse 8, to be filled with the Spirit in the sense 
that we need to come more fully under the Spirit's influence in every area of life. But, but that doesn't change the fact that every genuine believer is indwelt in full by the Holy Spirit. The moment you become a Christian, the moment you place your trust in Jesus to give you spiritual life as a gift and stop trying to earn it by keeping all the rules or breaking all the rules, God moves in on his own initiative. Hear that, friend. He's not waiting for people to ask him into their heart. He takes initiative to move in and to stay. The the spirit, in other words, he mediates the presence of God to the people of God by making his home with us. That, That is a crazy gift, friends. Crazy gift. Just think of a few implications. Consider the dignity the Spirit's indwelling gives to your physical existence in this world. Okay, no no matter how, how broken, how decrepit, how sick or dysfunctional your body becomes, you are, Christian, you remain the dwelling place of God. Think about that. The, the, the world might, might look at you and say, what a loser. Or you're too short. Or you're too fat. Or, or, you're, or you're too whatever. The, the Lord says what? You are my dwelling place. You're my temple. My spirit is in you because you're mine. You think there's dignity in that? Or or consider the the comfort that the Spirit's indwelling supplies in in the loneliest hours of your life. You know, no matter matter where you are or what you're feeling, Almighty God is with you. And the Lord promises, and Karn prayed part of this earlier this morning, Psalm 139. He makes promises in there that, that are immeasurably more true for the people of God today on this side of Pentecost than they even were for King David. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, east, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, west, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Why? It's it's not just because God is everywhere present. It's because, Christian, he is continually with you because he's in you. Finally, consider the the incentive to holiness the Spirit's indwelling provides. Incentive to holiness. In in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul Paul forbids any expression of sexual activity outside of marriage. Forbids it. Declaring this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why is that a big deal, Paul? My body's mine. I can do whatever I want as as long as no one gets hurt. Right? Consenting adults? Right? No. Because do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. 
You're doing what with God's temple? And and Paul makes the same argument in in 2 Corinthians 6. What's he do there? He, He warns Christians against closely aligning themselves with unbelievers. Whether through intimate friendship or marriage. What does he say? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Of what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Friends, that should put a holy fear of God in you. That gives great care to what you do with your temple. Because it's his And to the degree we take the spirit for granted in in all kinds of ways like these, we're, we're forgetting the distinctive blessing of new covenant relationship with God. What's that? The indwelling spirit. The spirit indwells the people of God. Lastly, at least for this morning, the spirit imparts the life of God. He imparts the life of God. What what do we mean by this? Well, have you ever wondered? I always think in questions, so my apologies. It's how my brain works. But have you ever wondered, what what does the Spirit do once he indwells a Christian? Like, hey, oh, wow, Holy Spirit, riding shotgun. Cool, I think. You've got to watch my speeding. You know, is that what we're talking about? What's he do once he indwells a Christian? Is he busy? Is he active? I mean, is he just along for the ride like the dangly thing on your rearview mirror? What's he doing? Some of you think, that's that's an irreligious question. How disrespectful. No, it's a good question. What's he doing? Well, well, Jesus helps us understand, listen to this, the massive, massive significance of the Spirit's ministry by taking us back to the story of his own ministry. He's not spazzing or switching topics to confuse you and make John hard. If we want to understand the Spirit's ministry, what he's doing as the one who indwells us, we have to understand something about Jesus' ministry because Jesus' story and his ministry have everything to do with the Spirit's story and his ministry. Okay? So, what's going on with Jesus here? Verses 18 to 20. He knows the hour of his crucifixion is fast approaching. Verse 19, look there. Before too long, he says, the world will see me no more. Not because he performs a disappearing act, (laughs) because he's about to be crucified, taken out, as far as the world's concerned. And, And you know, whether the disciples understood the significance of all that or not, Jesus knows what's about to happen, right? I'm gonna die. And guys, you're going to feel like I'm abandoning you. You're going to feel like I'm, I'm forsaking you, like a parent just leaving their kids somewhere. But, but rest assured, guys, rest assured, the cross is not the end of the line. 
Death is not going to be able to hold me. What does he say? I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you without a spiritual father or family. Why not? Verse 19, you will see me because, verse 18, I will come to you. What's that referring to? First and foremost, it's his resurrection from the grave. After which the disciples though his public ministry had been ended, they beheld him face to face. And then in verse 18, Jesus connects the story of his life to the story of their life with a really, really sweet promise. Actually, it's in 19. Look at the end of 19. It's an incredible promise. What's he say? Because I live, you also will live. Because I'm alive, you'll be alive. Okay, cue the band up. That sounds singable. Let's go. No, no, slow down, friend. Especially if you've been a Christian a long time. Slow down. What does that actually mean? Because I live, you also will live. We need to think about that because sometimes I think we we kind of peg Jesus' resurrection as something that just confirms the merit of his death. It, It What's the resurrection do? Well, it says that the infinite worth of his life exceeded the immeasurable debt of our sins, so the grave couldn't hold him, so he rose. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, gloriously true, actually. It's the whole reason we know we're forgiven. (laughs) If he doesn't rise, we are to be pitied more than all men. But, But don't reduce, don't reduce the resurrection of Christ to to some kind of notary stamp on a divine bill of pardon. Don't do that. His life does far more than validate the sacrifice of his death. It's, It's the very life that secures and defines our own life, both now and for all eternity. Think about this. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. In that day, the the day when the the new age of resurrection life begins, he's the firstborn from the grave, you will know not only, what are you going to know? That I'm in the Father, that I'm one with God because I am God, but also that you are in me, Jesus says, and I am in you. Listen carefully. How do we come to be in Christ and he in us? That's big. What what enables us to experience the same intimacy of spiritual fellowship with the son that the son enjoys with the father? Well, the answer is the work of the spirit. Remember, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one because they share the same divine nature. What's that mean? Where one member of the Trinity is present, the other two are also present. Which means the Spirit dwelling with us in verse 17, the Son being in us in verse 19, and the Father and the Son making their home with us in verse 23 are not three separate, different, disconnected activities. (laughs) The first one, the spirit coming to dwell in us, is what brings all the others to pass. That's the point. 
That the Spirit, he mediates the presence of the triune God, Father and Son included, after Jesus has physically ascended back into heaven. So, where is Jesus right now? Well, right now, Jesus is with the Father in heaven, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet in a physical sense, bodily sense, interceding on our behalf. And at the same time, he is with us on earth in a spiritual sense, among his people, through the Spirit, continuing the redeeming work that he began when he was living on earth, but doing it now through the person of the Spirit. And that's why in verse 18, many people see a double meaning here. What's that? That Jesus didn't leave the disciples as orphans, first and foremost, because he rose from the grave. That's true. But even after he ascended into heaven and went away again into glory, he still didn't leave them as orphans because he remained with them and he remains with us right now through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. So Jesus is with us, in other words, because the Spirit is with us. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And it's our our present experience of the Spirit, Christian, that, that guarantees our present interest or stake in the saving work of the Son because the Spirit is the bond. He's, he's the spiritual fabric, the means of our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. And we are in the deep end of the pool here. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. What's Paul saying? That when we place our faith in Jesus, random spiritual blessings and benefits start falling out of the sky and hitting you in the head. No, no, what happens? When we place our faith in Jesus, the spirit unites us to Jesus such that, Christian, you become one with Jesus. And when that happens, when that spiritual union that that we cannot fully understand, but we believe it because God says it's taken place, when that union happens, his life becomes our life. Which is why Paul could say to the, the Christians in Colossians 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. We anticipate the day when Christ, who is your life, appears. What, what's that mean? What, what is true of Jesus' life becomes true of the life of all who have been united to him by faith. Because he lives, we also live. That the blessings he deserves become the blessings we receive. The victory over sin and death he achieved becomes the victory over sin and death we enjoy. That the joy and peace that he knows become the joy and peace that we know. And none of that is legal fiction or gobbledygook make-believe. It's the work of the Spirit. We can't be saved apart from the Holy Spirit. Do you agree with that? Why not? Many of us were, were kind of probably primed for me to say, we cannot be saved apart from Jesus. And all God's people said, you know, amen, let's think of the saying. Well, yes, <laughs> but you cannot be saved 
without the work of the Spirit because it's the Spirit of God that unites us to the Son of God such that all all that is wonderfully and savingly true of his life is applied to our own. He's that mission critical. (laughs) So if if you're weary in the battle for godliness, friend, or if you're losing heart in the fight to follow Jesus, if you, if you feel like spiritual life right now, be honest, is just slipping through your fingers, take heart. Take heart in this because Jesus lives. You too will live. You can no more perish than the Son of God himself can perish. So don't don't gauge your future based on what you see in your life right now. Gauge your future based on what you see in Jesus. Fix fix your gaze on on his life for for his holiness and, and his love and his humility and his generosity and his faithfulness and his wisdom and, and his power is precisely what God the Father has made available to you and is even now forming within you unfailingly because of the work of the indwelling spirit. So if you want to know what God is doing in you or where God's taken you, look to Jesus. When you want to know what God will accomplish in you, look to Jesus. When you want to know all that awaits you, look to Jesus because his life is your life, Christian. And all the benefits of his saving work, they're applied to you. They're yours. They're given to you through the person and work of the Spirit. That's just the first three reasons he matters. But let's remember the context, okay? Remember the context of the whole. Keeping God's commandments is tough work. It's hard. And Jesus promises to give us the help we need. But that help, hear this this morning, friend. That help doesn't come to you or me in in the form of some sort of like nebulous infusion of spiritual strength that we don't really know where it comes from, but we're just kind of wandering around praying prayers and hoping we get hit with it. Maybe if I get up earlier in the morning, then I'll kind of find it. No, the help you need to love God by obeying his commands has been given to you, Christian, in the form of a person, the Holy Spirit. He indwells the people of God. He imparts the life of God because he's given by God, which means he's the best gift we could ever receive. If you try to do the Christian life without relying on the Holy Spirit, it's like driving a car with nary a drop of gas in the tank. It won't work. You can't do it. So what do we do? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it'll be opened. 
What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I think we should ask right now. Father, this song that we're about to sing is in many ways a prayer. And we say that is good because having been reminded anew, or maybe for the first time, who you are, Holy Spirit, why you're here, what you're doing, why we need you, how impossible it is to love God by obeying his commands without you. Lord, we hear all that and and the place that delivers us is just a, a fresh, deeper awareness of how much we need you, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you're God. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you indwell us even now, all who are clinging to Christ by faith. We don't have to holler or shout or wave our hands to convince you to show up. We don't have to work ourselves into a singing frenzy. We can call upon you because you're God. It's a spirit of God. We ask right now as your people that you would please come and fill us. We want to be filled with you, Holy Spirit. We want to come more fully under your influence in every area of life. Thank you that you're not weird or crazy. You are mysterious. Your ways are beyond our ways but you've told us what you're like. You're the helper. And so we say as your people right now, Holy Spirit, please help. Please help. You know where. You know how. You know when. Please help. We want more of you. Amen.